Let's pray. Lord, we come before you now in the name of your Son. Pray that you would help me to bring forth your word in a way that is clear, that is understandable, and that is faithful to who you are and to who we are supposed to be. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, we ended a a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, uh, the account of Jesus' life. Uh, The basic reason that I chose that particular book is that I wanted my time in this church, my ministry here, to be built on a solid foundation. That's what I wanted. (coughs) Oh, excuse me. Uh, There was a moment uh, in Jesus' ministry where he asked his disciples, "Who, who do you think that I am? And their leader, the Apostle Peter, said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the, the first line of the book of Mark. The, book of Mar- the, the first line of the book of Mark, I'll read it to you. Um, I have it memorized, but I want to make sure that I get it exactly right. Uh, it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the, that is the foundation. That is where we start. That, uh, when, when Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, on that rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell are not going to stand against it. That's how important that those few little tiny words, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's how important those are. Those are where Christ builds his church. If, though, if any of those words are absent from what we believe about Jesus, the church doesn't exist. If we do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, meaning if we do not believe that Jesus is the one that God sent to accomplish our salvation, then there is no church because it's not Jesus. So it's probably someone else and we'll build our church on someone else, but not on Jesus. You can't even take out that one word. If Jesus is not the son of the living God, then he is not divine. Then he is just a man and he is unable to save any of us. He is unable to do anything. This concept that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God is where we have to begin. And that's why I did a whole series, 54 Sundays long on the book of Mark, because I wanted to unfold. I wanted to introduce you in a big way to who Jesus is. Now that I have established that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, I hope, uh, through the sermons that I did on the book of Mark, I, I want to start a new series on a new book of the Bible, and that series is going to start today. Uh, we're going to go verse by verse through the New Testament book of James. We're going to go through the book of James. Um, This book was uh, one of the earliest books written in the New Testament, which was part of the reason why I chose it. The reason that I chose Mark, uh, well, one of the reasons that I chose Mark, by the way, is because Mark was the first gospel account written. That was the first one. All of the other gospels, the Matthew and Luke, um, build off of what Mark wrote. Uh, John is kind of his own thing. Uh, But uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are known as the synoptic gospels. But it all starts with Mark, which is interesting because 
It actually starts with Matthew in the order of the Bible, but Mark was the one that was the earliest. And James is actually one of the the last books uh, in the Bible, but it was one of the first books that was written. And I, I like the concept of coming into this congregation and uh, you've been here for a long time. You have had a lot of biblical teaching, but I had to find a place to start. So why not start at the beginning? Amen. Right? Why not start with the first gospel account written? Why not start with the first letter that was written to the church after it had been established? And that's what the book of James is. Uh the New Testament, you have to remember that the New Testament is not one book, but it is a collection of books written by different authors uh, over a span of about 60 years, 70 years, so, somewhere in that area. <clears throat> uh, it's most likely that the book of James, specifically, uh, was written around A.D. 44, somewhere between 44 and 49. So to give you a little bit of context uh, and a bit of a timeline of what was going on at that time, Jesus was crucified, uh, died, rose again, and went into heaven around A.D. 33. Okay, so if this book was written in A.D. 44, then it was about 11, somewhere between 10 and 15 years after Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven. <clears throat> uh in the year uh, 49, there was a council in Jerusalem where the leaders of the church gathered together to decide whether non-Jews, or Gentiles as they called them, would be allowed into the Christian faith. And they came to the agreement that, yes, we are allowed in. So congratulations, you are allowed in. <laughs> that, that was what they decided. And um, the, the fact that this book of the Bible doesn't make any mention of that hugely momentous occasion gives a little bit more evidence that it was written earlier than that happened. So if the council was uh, was at AD 49, then this probably was written just a little bit before that. A few maybe a few years, maybe only 6 months before. We don't know. We really don't. Um the the council was chaired by the writer of this book of the Bible. Um uh the writer of this letter uh, identifies himself right here in, in verse 1. So if you want uh, to turn in your Bibles to the book of James, uh, the book of James, I don't know what page it's on. Does somebody have it open in the Pew Bible that you can tell us what page it's on? 1881. 1881, page 1881 in the Pew Bible. Well, that's all right. 1880. So James 1 verse 1 says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let's stop there. For this week, we're not going to go any further. We're just going to talk about who is James, what he's all about, who he's writing to. Uh, so the author tells us his name, which is James. Um, we don't know with absolute certainty which James this is. Uh, there are basically three possibilities. First, there is James, the son of Zebedee, who is the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder. James was in the inner circle of Jesus's ministry, along with his brother, uh, his brother John and the apostle Peter. Uh, it's possible that he wrote this letter. Uh, it's, it, it is possible, uh, but it's unlikely because he actually died in the year 44. He was beheaded by King Herod for being a Christian, for preaching. Um, 
And, and as you hopefully remember to just a couple minutes ago, the year 44 is right around the time that this was written. So it was a very tumultuous time uh, for the Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, James was uh, under a lot of heat and eventually he was killed. And so it's likely that he didn't have the time to get around to writing any letters. Uh, and there's virtually uh, all scholarship says maybe, but probably not when it comes to James, the son of Zebedee. Um, <coughs> the, the second person who may have written this letter is another of Jesus' disciples called James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, we know basically nothing about him. There is very little evidence that he is the author. And so, again, most scholars say maybe, but probably not. Uh, Matthew Henry, who wrote uh, a very famous set of commentaries, believes that James, the son of Alphaeus, was the writer. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, and he wasn't the smartest guy in the world, so we're probably just going to ignore him. And uh, the third and most widely accepted author is that it was James, Jesus' brother. Jesus' baby brother. Uh, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to James after he rose from the dead. Uh, we know from reading Acts 15 that that council in Jerusalem where they decided that you could be a part of the church, that that was chaired by the brother of Jesus. So he was uh, a very important leader in the church. He was uh, respected by all of Jesus' apostles. Uh, he was uh, also known as the first bishop of the Jerusalem church, which basically means that he was a pastor with a lot more power than a normal pastor. Um, a lot more important than a guy like me. Uh, when they had that council, uh, he was the chairman, not Peter or John. He was known as James the Just because he was one of the wisest men in the early church. He was deeply committed to the teachings of the Old Testament and to the teachings of Jesus. Uh, when there was a dispute, they took it to James. Uh, when they, uh, He was so dedicated to the faith that it was said that his knees were like camel's knees because he prayed so much. His knees looked like camel's. Um, I kind of know what that looks like. My dad was a carpet layer. And after laying carpets for 20 years, my dad's knees were, were, yeah, they were a lot like camel's knees. Uh, this guy didn't get it from hard work. He got it from praying, which is maybe even harder work than laying carpet. I don't know. I'd have to ask my dad. Um, yeah, it's, it's likely that, that, he was the, that he was the author of this letter. He was so devout uh, that they, when, they, when the high priest Ananus, uh, in the time of uh, very big turmoil in Jerusalem, uh, the high priest Ananus wanted to stamp out the church. He wanted to get rid of the church and get everybody back to the Jewish faith. And so he actually went to James the Just and asked him to go up onto the Temple Mount and to tell the people to stop following Jesus. Um, very bad miscalculation on his point, uh, on his part, because when James got up there, he basically just started preaching that you should follow Jesus. And so they, uh, what they did is they, uh, Ananus was standing down below watching him do this, and he turned to one of the men who was standing next to him, and he said, Make, get him off of there, push him down. And so they pushed him from the top of the temple and he fell down and they stoned him to death and then beat him with clubs until he died. That was, that was how James the Just met his end, was that he was so committed to his brother being the God of the universe that he stood on the temple mount until they pushed him off and killed him. 
Um, and he was not willing to back down. He was not willing to tell people not to follow Jesus because he knew that Jesus was and is the son of the living God, the Christ. Uh, in this uh, in this letter that he writes to the church, he, he says, James, a, a slave of God. Uh, my translation says a servant of God, and your translation probably also says a servant of God. Uh, but the Greek word, I don't love to talk about the Greek, but sometimes it's important. The Greek word that uh, is used here for servant is actually doulos, that he calls himself the doulos of God. Uh, the end of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the word doulos does not just mean he was a servant because a servant is a person who willingly subjects themselves to service in order to receive something from the person who they are serving. Whereas the it's, it's intended as, as a deeper, uh, more, um, it, more along the lines of slavery, that he calls himself a slave of God. I am a doulos of God, a bond servant. I am bound to him. I am serving him. I, I'm not serving him so that I can get something out of him. I am totally loyal to him because he is my master. He is my Lord. He is, I am his slave. Uh, he is uh, completely obedient to Jesus. Uh, James believes himself to be Jesus's property. He doesn't, I love that he doesn't flaunt his family connection to Jesus. Right? Because you'd think that that's what he would do. You'd think that if he wanted to convey his authority, that you should read this book and you should listen to me. You know why? Because Jesus was my big brother. That's pretty good credentials. But he doesn't do that. He says, I am a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it doesn't matter who your brother is. You can still go to hell and have Jesus as your brother. It's only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to salvation. Amen. And so he calls himself a slave of God. What matters in James's life is that he is completely devoted to following Christ. And that's what he's written this book about. How to be completely devoted to following Christ. How to be completely devoted to God. How to be a slave of God. How to be a slave. A book was written to Jewish Christians all over the known world. Uh, the Jews were law-abiding people. They were all trained from a young age to know what the Old Testament law was, how to follow it, what they were supposed to do. Um, when Jesus came along and the message to the Jews changed from you need to follow the law to you need to believe in Jesus, there was a movement that sought to abandon the law altogether and basically say it doesn't matter now how we live, it matters that we believe in Jesus. Uh, this is a view that is known as antinomianism. Uh, or basically just anti-law, that we are pushing out the law and, you know, I, I'm just going to do my thing, put my faith in Jesus, and let's go. And, and this is still going on, obviously. Um, we in our super sensitive, uh, we're super sensitive in our 21st century church to legalism. Ooh, legalism. We use that so often. We are so sensitive that we call people legalists even when they're not being legalistic. We love to call people legalists. In, in our time, basically, if someone tells you that you shouldn't do something that you want to do, we call them legalistic. Uh, we say, don't judge. Jesus said, don't judge. You're being legalistic. We call people legalistic at the drop of a hat. We, uh, we say we're saved by faith alone. And that's true. We are saved by God's grace through our faith alone. However, that doesn't mean it doesn't matter how you live. 
It doesn't mean that the Old Testament law or all of the you should do this and you shouldn't do that in the Bible are just like nothing for no in there for no reason. There's a reason that God wrote the Bible. Most of the Bible is commands of what you should and should not do. That is a huge part of the Bible. But we hate, hate it when people tell us what to do. You all do. Don't even pretend that you don't. If you're married, you know that you hate it when someone tells you what to do. Even when it's a totally reasonable thing to do. You will tell your spouse, leave me alone, even when they want you to do something completely reasonable, but they asked you to do it in the wrong way. The Bible is all, has all kinds of you should do this and you shouldn't do that. And it's not because the Bible is telling you you have to do a whole bunch of good things in order to win God's favor. It is God telling you how you are to follow him. It is God telling you how you are supposed to live. We cannot earn our salvation from following the law because we've already failed to follow it perfectly. But the question arises, if we can't be saved by following the law, what is the law for? James is going to teach us in his book, what is the law for? He is going to teach us in his book, that the law and doing good works is intended to help you live the Christian life. It is intended to help you in your obedience. In this book, there is a lot of do's and don'ts, but James is not legalistic. If I was to come up to you and, and just say the things that James says to you and basically tell you that you're wrong and you need to start living this way, you would call me legalistic. I almost guarantee it. James is not being legalistic here. James is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And he's telling you, this is the way you should live. And this is the way you should be. It's not legalistic. Um, the, James doesn't talk about a lot of the things that the Apostle Paul talks about. Which has caused a lot of controversy um, over the last couple thousand years. <laughs> Um, especially, uh, in the 1500s, uh, there was a man named Martin Luther who basically wished that he could just cut James out of the Bible because James doesn't talk about, um, the things that Paul ta talks about, like how you get saved and how your salvation is accomplished. Um, he kind of, yeah, Paul, Paul likes to take you through the works of Jesus. He likes to talk about placing your faith in Jesus. He really likes to emphasize grace that you're saved by grace, not by obeying works of the law, that Jesus accomplished your salvation by dying on the cross for you. And all of that is true and absolutely 100% essential to your salvation. You, you cannot take out the, the grace of God and expect someone to find salvation. It just doesn't happen. The Apostle Paul is hugely concerned about these things, but James kind of skips over all of that almost like assumes that you know it and just dives into how should a Christian live in this world. Um, <clears throat> James, he's not disputing anything that, that the Apostle Paul writes about. He is helping you to, to know what now. Um, God cares how you live. God cares how you live your life. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll do what I say. If you love me, you'll obey me. If you are a Christian, you will obey God. 
If you're not a Christian, you will not obey God. If you are a Christian, you will obey God. You cannot say, I am a Christian, and completely disobey God. It doesn't work that way. It, it's uh, being double-minded. You cannot be a double-minded Christian. You cannot be someone who says that you are committed wholeheartedly to Jesus and chase after things that the Bible completely condemns. Um, we're not, again, we're not talking about legalism here. Obedience is the evidence of your salvation. You should probably stop using the word legalism. All of you should probably stop using the word legalism because you're using it wrong. I, maybe I'm wrong about that, but 99.9% .9 of the people who have told me that I'm being legalistic have been wrong. And when I see people calling each other legalistic, they're wrong. Because the dictionary, the actual dictionary definition of legalism is someone who believes, uh, no, is a dependence on the moral law rather than on personal religious faith. So it's dependence on the moral law rather than on personal religious faith. A person who is being legalistic is a person who is saying it basically doesn't matter what you believe, it matters how you live. That's not true. It matters what you believe. You have to believe the right things. You can be a very good moral person and go straight to hell. It matters what you believe. A person who is being legalistic says, what I believe doesn't matter. All that matters is that I'm doing the right thing. All that matters is that I'm being good. That's legalism. When someone says to you, you know, the Bible says you probably shouldn't do that. They're not being legalistic. Because they're not depending on your ability to follow God rather than on your personal faith. They're trying to help you in your personal faith to depend on God more and to live your life the way that God wants you to live your life. Stop using the word legalism. If this person that you're accusing of legalism is depending on their own ability in order to get saved, then they're being legalistic. If, the, if they are not, then they're not being legalistic. They're being cautious. This letter from James to the church is not telling you to be legalistic. It is telling you how to behave like a Christian. Jesus said you can... Uh, you can judge a tree by its fruit. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. A Christian doesn't produce sin. A Christian repents of sin, turns from sin, and puts their faith and trust in Jesus. A Christian who has no desire to turn away from sin is not a Christian. A Christian who is married to their sin is not a Christian. That's a person who is taking the title of Christian and using it to mean whatever they want it to mean. A Christian is a person who turns from sin and puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I know it's very exclusive. It's very mean, isn't it? To say that a, a Christian who is totally devoted to their sin is not a Christian. That's really mean, right? Like, who am I to judge? Right? That's probably what some of you are thinking. Like, wow, how can you even say that? You don't know them. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know their heart. You don't know their mind. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know what their experience is. No, you're right. I don't know. But all I'm doing is going off of what the Bible says. You can judge a tree by its fruit. 
Jesus said, you can judge a tree by its fruit. You are allowed to judge a tree by its fruit. Did you know that? You are allowed to judge. Bible said, Jesus also said, judge not lest ye be judged. For with the judgment that you present to someone, you will also be judged by that same standard. That's what Jesus said when he said, don't judge. So don't be a hypocrite, but you are allowed to judge. You can judge a tree by its fruit. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. A Christian doesn't produce sin. A Christian does not pursue sin. A Christian pursues obedience to God. I know, it's mean. That's okay. We'll move on. This is why there's no such thing as a gay Christian. Because a homosexual lifestyle is a sinful lifestyle. Uh, And being a Christian is about repenting or turning from your sin and devoting your life to Jesus. Now you will desire to put sin out of your life and to follow Jesus to be obedient to him. That's why this whole slave concept that James calls himself a slave of God. That's why this concept is so important. Because to be a Christian is to be a slave of Jesus. To be a Christian is to be a slave of Jesus. Yes, being a Christian, you are a child of Jesus. You are a child of God. Yes, that is absolutely true. But you are also a slave of God. You are supposed to be devoted to God in your obedience. Yes, you receive, based on Christ's work for you, you receive salvation and eternal life in heaven. Absolutely. That is not based on your works. That is not based on anything that you could possibly do. But you are also a slave. You are devoted to God. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be devoted to God. And this is what James is helping us to do with this letter. As we dive into this letter, some of these things are going to sting you. They're going to hurt. Uh, Some of the words that James is going to say are actually going to feel like they're being directed right at you. Embrace that feeling. That's a good feeling to have. That means that the Holy Spirit is working in you and leading you and helping you. It's important to be open to what God wants you to change in your life. Be willing to take this correction uh, or you may fall into hypocrisy. It's important that we do not base our faith on how we feel, but on what the Bible actually says. What Jesus actually says. I think I've said enough by way of introduction. Um, So I'd like to just take the last part of my sermon to simply let the text speak for itself. So if you're, you should already be in the book of James. Um, But uh, if you're not, you should go there. I'm going to read the whole letter, front to back. Uh, I'm going to read it in the English Standard Version of the Bible. So your words are going to be a little bit different in your Bibles if you don't have the English Standard Version. The Pew Bible is in the NIV, so it's going to be a little bit different. Um, But I like the ESV, and I'm going to be preaching from the ESV. And so I'm going to just go for it. If you want, just sit back, close your eyes, and listen. That's valuable too. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he, lo- what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said... Do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, Well, you have faith, but I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and that faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. And in that same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, and we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, yet they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From that same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and, and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire so you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. 
My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. Let's pray. Father, let these words have their full effect on our hearts. Father, do not allow us to walk away from here unaffected. Help us to know the truth. Lord, set us free by the power of the truth. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The beginning of every month, we do uh, a holy drama, which was instituted.